Justin Farrell, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Yeah, it's uh, great to be here. I'm a big fan. Thank you. We appreciate that. All right. So let's just get right into it. You do not mince words in Billionaire Wilderness. You describe in great detail how the ultra-wealthy use nature to solve economic dilemmas, often benefiting from like the positive community feedback of environmental philanthropy, while at the same time further enriching themselves. You know, you describe how they often mistake relationships that are based on economic exchange as genuine friendships. Um, And I'm dying to ask you, what has the reaction been to your book from these ultra-wealthy people who you interviewed and who were generous with their time and who I'm sure you got to know over the course of your five years of research? I did. Yeah, I still have great relationships with some of them. You know, the there wasn't this intense blowback that you might expect. Um, but as a social scientist, I know that that's probably biased in the sense of those who are upset, you know, may not reach out. But overall, I think that most people, even if they disagree with some of my interpretation of maybe their relationship with someone who works for them or their relationship with their fishing guide or something like that, that I used really, you know, good data and that I told the story in a way that was hopefully accurate. And I I really went to great lengths to do that, even though, you know, at times, um, usually with their own quotes, it can be quite critical and um, even cringe-inducing for some people. Given all the research that you've done and all of the exclusive ultra-wealthy spaces that you've gained access to in Jackson and Teton County, but also through your understanding of the reality of low-income, you know, working poor residents, their living conditions and, and struggles here, I'm wondering how you see Jackson and Teton County, like through which lens you're viewing this place as you walk through it now. That's a really great question. And I'm constantly switching between have two lenses, I suppose. You know, the one, and the first one I'm always operating with is this analytical lens, um, really sensitive to changes in the community. You know, and that could be how people uh, are, you know, looking and feeling and acting on the town square in terms of even going through a crosswalk, what traffic is like, people's attitudes, the general feeling. And those types of things Um, are really important for research because, you know, in ethnographic research, as we call it, which is based on, you know, observation, living somewhere, being somewhere, and just kind of living in people's shoes, but also in the community's shoes and really what it's like. Um, I'm always doing that. And and I do that every time I'm here. But at the same time, you know, I really have a connection to this place and I always have. And so I also see it through the lens of someone who is watching it grow and change and um, wrestling with that in my own life and what that means and what that means for my kids, for example. And um, we, we have three young kids who we have spent a lot of time here with them and um, what's it going to look like for them when they're you know, my age. And so um, there's this analytical and kind of scholarly connection, but also this deep personal connection as well. And I would say it extends beyond you know, just Jackson. Um, you, know, you look over the past and Driggs and my grandfather had ag land there and I learned to ride a horse there. And that side of the family in Idaho was very critical of Jackson, even like 20 years ago. So they were just like, no way. Um, and you know, it's kind of funny. I always wonder doing research here. It's like, what's worse for my family doing research in Jackson or working at Yale. It's like, they're kind of the same thing (laughs) for them. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, but no, I, I, um, I'm always kind of, I have my finger on the pulse and I think about this place when I'm not here and read about it and 
look at the census data and look at how everything's changing year by year. And um, so, but it's, there's this also this deep personal connection. Okay, well, we're going to talk about pandemic changes in just a minute. But first, so I wanted to just read this quote you have in the book. Um, You say, people, both wealthy and non-wealthy, and organizations that are genuinely interested in moving beyond the status quo and Band-Aid solutions should focus on using their money and power to reform policy and build more equitable institutions. So I wondered if you could talk about some of the policy reforms that you discuss in the book and some kind of maybe practical takeaways that folks might um, want to grasp onto if they're feeling depressed about what you have written. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, at the end of the book, I have this epilogue and it was really difficult to write because things are changing so quickly. And so I shied away actually of, of recommending specific policies. And a lot of times academics are not very good at that. And um, so I have these broad recommendations and it starts with First, requiring more from the ultra wealthy, and that can happen in lots of different ways, um, through you know attacks on luxury real estate transfers. Um, you know, to, there I think last year was like two point four billion dollars um, after COVID. Um, you know, in luxury real estate, and but virtually none of that's going into the community. Um, at the state level, I talk about Wyoming's lack of an income tax. I talk about lack of a corporate tax, and so there's some really easy remedies on paper, but the state of Wyoming is not instituting an income tax anytime soon. The, the local government, um, where I was born in Cheyenne, I mean, it's, it's gone further and further to the right. And it's just, even if it's, you know, we're talking about taxing people that, to be honest, they don't like in terms of Jackson, Teton County, they don't even really consider it Wyoming, yet even still, they're not willing to tax those folks from coming from California or Texas or wherever it is that are not like them, don't really share their values, and are coming to benefit financially from this this tax shelter that you know Wyoming has become. Um, so, I talk about that a little bit in the book. Then I have you know as a sociologist, I'm really interested in studying community and what makes a community. And this is a little more mushy, and rather than just saying you know institute this policy or the the town council should do this or here's how you fix the housing crisis which is, <laughs> let's not even get into that. Um, but um, w- what type of community do you want to be? Who belongs in the community? What gives a community character? And starting at those broad, at that broad level with those types of questions, that again, sounds sort of like, okay, well, what's that going to do? And then moving from there with the policy. Um, I don't think that Jackson has really done that, that the comp plan and everything, but there's not a lot of room um, or a lot of space, especially for local politicians who are like overworked and you know work part time and all of that to get up to speed, but also to just get everyone together in the community and, and say where are we going, um, and and where do we want to go and how can we get there, and so I think that's probably the biggest thing. The only thing that would probably slow growth or or make it more difficult would be like shutting down the airport, but I'm not sure that's going to happen, <laughs> and I don't advocate that for, in my book, but that would make an impact. Right. Well, and, you know, clearly the the issues, some of the issues you just mentioned, like housing crises and this growing, you know, growing gap between the ultra wealthy and working poor residents, you know, the squeeze on the middle class, that's not just a Jackson problem. We know that this is a Bozeman problem and a Boise problem and, you know, even a Denver and like Seattle problem to, to some extent. 
Can you um, talk more regionally about your research and the new Western Research Center that you're the director of at Yale? Yeah, so I, I direct this um, lab that we call Lab for Western Lands and People. And it's it's to conduct research and high-quality research, social science, natural science, a blend of the two, um, humanities, and to make room for all of that and to to approach some of these questions that I, I was just talking about in terms of what makes a community, what makes the West special, what makes these rural places special, um, how does a place like Jackson relate to a place like Rock Springs or something like that. Just And we're essentially instituting um, a program at Yale by myself and my students to really look at some of these topics and and really focusing on rural gentrification, focusing on the impact of that, for example, on ecological health, and and really taking a holistic approach. And it's it's really fun for me because I have all sorts of really great students coming in, and I'm able to now recruit students. Um, all of my students this coming year are coming from western areas, and they've lived in these these towns, and they kind of understand it, and they want to come um, to a place like Yale, which is to be honest, it's very uncomfortable for some students. It's uncomfortable for me. Um, but there are resources there and there's a legacy there of doing this kind of work and to be able to do really good research that's going to hopefully benefit communities and not just places like Jackson, um, but again, other rural places. And um, for example, last year we had this big COVID project and we did a, a big survey across all 11 Western states, only in rural communities about how COVID was impacting them. And use that, you know, and um, sorry, we, we developed that survey and we uh, then distributed it to like the Western Governors Association and local politicians just to really kind of provide some information that was trustworthy in this, you know, age of Twitter and all of that. And and so we're, we're really trying to be this kind of, it's a buzzword, but nonpartisan in, in a way and, and to try to kind of provide that value for people that I don't think a lot of towns have. You mentioned Yale being uncomfortable for you. You're you're a you're a native Wyomingite, and you you mentioned your Idaho family. You know, sort of maybe looking down or not agreeing with or not. And my along Wyoming with. family. Okay, so <laughs> uh, there's a lot of like political um, complexity there. How do you reconcile the different identities? You know, and kind of hats that you wear. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's it's tough, and it's it's always been something that I've had a hard time with, and. You know, feeling like an imposter, for example, at a place like Yale, where I was a first-generation college student, and I, I don't know how I wound up there, but I did, and it's been, it's been at the, at the beginning, it was really difficult because I'm like, well, what am I doing? Can I do this type of work? And but I just went with it and was like, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but overall, I feel really supported there, and there's, um, there are a lot of really great students, and I see it as more of this opportunity. To be honest, I would feel more comfortable at a university out west, and I think um, it would be in some ways easier. Um, and I collaborate with a lot of folks at those universities, um, but I am always having to kind of explain, you know, they're you know I work at Yale, and they're like, oh, okay, what, <laughs> you know, or if I want to interview someone who's a rancher in Utah, for example, they're like, what, <laughs> you know, I, I they sort of um, for good reason, I suppose, you know, kind of are turned off by it, but. Again, I see it as um, a platform that I can hopefully use for for good. And I can even challenge, you know, um, status quo at a university like that as much as I can, you know. And um, but it's it's good. And I I just went through the tenure process. So I'm I'm probably going to be there for good. Congratulations on that. That's exciting. Um, All right. You mentioned COVID a few minutes ago. 
Billionaire Wilderness was published, I believe, in March 2020, right as the mm-hmm. world changed and we right. were thrown into the coronavirus pandemic. So first of all, I guess, how did that affect just the publishing of the book? And I'm sure it impacted your you know, promotion of it. But also, um, you know, how has the pandemic impacted the trends and the status quo that you wrote about in, in the book? Yeah. So the book came out in March 2020. And I had this well, I didn't. The book press had this huge tour lined up, all East Coast, West Coast, um, and and two days before it was just all canceled. And you know, at the time, it was like, "What is happening?" This is kind of with COVID, and it was like totally, yeah, the book tour is not a priority. Um, you've seen people die, and just everything that was going on, the economy crashing, and so I, I really wasn't too concerned about it. But in looking back, it was sort of a bummer, just because I, I didn't get out and chat with people about this. And I couldn't come to Jackson to give a talk. I um, I gave one talk right before everything shut down and that was in Denver and that was my first tour stop. And um, after that, nothing. So everything was online, you know, like everything else these days. Um, but now I'm back kind of out there and I, this summer I've given talks in, in different mountain towns. I've given talks at a lot of different universities around the country. And so, I've, you know, it's it's been good. Um, and, you know, I wrote a, a New York Times op-ed during COVID that sort of looked at some of what was going on in the book and and with COVID at the time. And that gave me an opportunity to kind of reflect on the pandemic and the book. So there were some um, positives in terms of pushing the book forward a little bit um, and interpreting kind of what's going on today. As far as the pandemic, I mean, it's thrown gasoline on a, on a fire that was as I argue in the book, that's the whole topic um, that was already burning and is almost like this turbocharger for everything. And it's honestly, um, I, I knew we were on that trajectory in places like here, um, all around Colorado, Utah, Idaho now, um, some parts of Montana, but I didn't, I think I underestimated the impact it would have and the way that the Zoom boom, Zoom towns or whatever you want to call it, just exploded. Places like Bozeman, where you see, you know, a doubling of a, the price of a single family home. Um, places like here who, you know, people are buying homes in Colorado too, you know, $10, 15000000 million homes without ever seeing them. I, moving forward, wonder, obviously, what this is going to look like in a couple of years. Are those homes going to remain vacant? You know, we already see in some areas, some of these homes are in towns, like 70% of homes are vacant. And... Meanwhile, there's a housing crisis, and so what is that going to look like? And I don't, I don't think we know quite yet, but that's a, a really important question and one that I'm going to be pursuing. The last question I have written down for you is along those lines. This has been a really difficult summer across the West, as you know, um, with heat waves, wildfires, drought, coupled with these social factors of housing crises and worker shortages, you know, all of the restaurants in town here, and, and not just restaurants, we've reported here on all kinds of businesses that are having to cut back services and possibly face, you know, closing entirely because of worker shortages. And at the meantime, you know, in the meantime, we're seeing record tourism numbers as well, right? So the stress, especially here in Teton County, is just through the roof. I wonder what your advice would be for residents of Jackson and elsewhere across the Mountain West who are really concerned about where we're headed. Yeah, um, there's a lot there. I mean, because um, some of it has to do with climate change, which we're not going to slow down anytime soon. Um, that is an issue of mitigation. But I also think with the population growth and the people who are coming and what they're they are or are not bringing to the community is a really big issue, and so I, I think 
like looking forward, some hard decisions are going to be made, have to be made about tourism. What do we do with the tourism promotion budgets? For example, uh, you know, is Jackson, is Teton County going to keep promoting the area and bringing in more and more tourists? And when this, the town cannot sustain itself, um, when they can't house workers, you know, those are really hard, hard issues. I think in terms of the folks who are, are very wealthy, when their restaurants are not operating as they usually do, that might get their attention. It's kind of like climate change. You know, we once the effects hit home, people start to recognize and, and look up from the comfort of wherever they are. My hope, though, is a place like here can be proactive. But from what I'm seeing, it's just this train that's kind of going along the tracks and it's really tough to slow down. At the, the heart of it for me is this growth imperative, this imperative for profit, this um, that is guiding sort of everything and that is um, being put ahead of the needs of the community and needs of longtime residents. And I'm not saying we we completely stop growth and we completely stop profit. Or obviously, it's really important for sustaining a community and we need jobs and all of that. But um, at what cost, you know, and, and who's benefiting? And I think you look at that with environmental issues, too. And that was in my book. I was I spent a lot of time on that and looking at how much attention is being given to save a moose, which I love moose, no offense to moose, um, versus a housing crisis, versus some of these other issues that are, are, I would argue, are really important as well and that don't command nearly as much attention, outrage, whatever it is. And so I think getting the attention of folks like that. But with that said, I think it, it does start with local government state government and the policies that are implemented to sort of drive that. I don't think it's going to happen through affluent philanthropy, anything like that, because it, it hasn't worked in the past. And outside of here, we see that it, it doesn't work, you know, in other places. And so, but those, those problems are monumental. And last thing I would say is that in some ways they are all connected as well, even with, even with climate change. And, um, and so as long as we can kind of see those connections, and make those decisions based on better information, better data, better research. I think we're going to be better off. Will you continue to study Teton County? I will. Yep. Yeah, I already have like so many different projects. And I have students doing their projects. And I have a field course out here where one of the courses I teach at Yale is we actually come out here. And uh, the students meet with all different stakeholders and learn about different issues with the parks, with the town, everything. Um, and so, yeah. I'll be around for the foreseeable future. Okay, great. Well, Justin Farrell, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us at KHOL. Great. Thanks so much.